Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today our student pastor, Ethan Smith, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, then go ahead and grab them. We are going to be in the book of Psalms this morning. We are going to be in Psalm 50. So again, if you have your Bible, then go ahead and grab them Psalm 50. And, and Psalm 50 for me this week, I was trying to think about how to, how to compare it. it. I compare it to if a friend called me on the phone and said, hey, do you want to go on a hike with us this weekend? And I say, uh, sure. Maybe I looked at the hike online. It's got a beautiful view. It doesn't look too, too steep, too difficult. The weather looks nice. Sure, I would absolutely love to go on a hike. But then we, we arrive there on, on Saturday morning, and I'm like huffing and puffing. <sighs> and my friend's like, hey, we just walked from the parking lot to the foot of the trail. Are you going to be okay? That's usually my experience in hiking anyway. But, but that's a little, a little taste of what Psalm 50 was for me this week. It's, it's beautiful. It is so full of truth that I believe we desperately need to hear. But the problem is it's 23 verses long, and you guys would like to have lunch at normal time. So we're going to do our best to get through 23 verses of Psalm 50. And, and one of the most amazing aspects of this psalm, and, and why I, I think it's going to be painful at times for us to consider, is that through this psalm, and especially at the beginning, the psalmist puts the weightiness of God to the forefront. So from the beginning... He makes very clear, this is your God. And as it progresses, and what's going to be painful is that far too often we are exactly like these Israelites who, in beholding their God, see how, how cool, how indifferent their hearts are towards God. Like we can confess a big God in our theology, and yet oftentimes in our, in our life, in our hearts, in our affections, well, the two don't always line up. And we need to heed the warning that's in this passage. We need to know God, and we need to worship Him rightly with our entire Selves, rather than often thinking that, that all God cares about is our attendance, that we were simply there. And, and Psalm 50 is going to help with that. And as I said, this is, this is a long psalm, especially for, for me attempting to, to preach. And so I want to I break this down into, into four sections, which I think will be, will be helpful for us to, to see what's going on in this passage. And really to see how we often fit into the exact same situations. But the nature of the Psalms, they were written to be used in, in worship. And so the divisions 
They're not always clean. Content overlaps, which is helpful because I don't know if you're like me. I need to be reminded of things often if I'm going to worship correctly. But I do think these four divisions will be helpful in our endeavor. So, so the first section we're going to look at, hopefully you have your Bibles, is verses 1 through 6. And I'll, I'll tell you the focus of each section as we go. In this first section, the, the focus is on God. It's on God. And it says this, Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, that we can partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering your death, your resurrection that, that bought us and bought us to be brought back to you. And Lord, I, I confess even in my own heart, and I think I, I can be representative of the church, I am often cool and different to the things of God. And Lord, I, I pray that Psalm 50, you would speak, you would move, you would open our eyes, inflame our hearts to love you and to worship you rightly. God, help us to understand this text. I pray you would move in this place for your glory, certainly not for mine, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the psalm begins, Asaph, who, as you can see, is, is the writer of this psalm, he comes out swinging. And he comes out swinging, and he reminds us of who it is that we're dealing with when we come to worship. And we really need to be reminded of this often. So, so, so from the outset, Asaph is telling us, like, before you progress, before you go any farther in worship through this psalm, let me remind you who God is. And look at the words he uses in verse 1. The mighty one. God, the Lord, he says, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So he goes at length here to convey the, the power and the authority of God, even in just how he describes God. God is the mighty one. He is the Lord of creation. God is mighty. He is powerful. He, he summons the earth into existence. Like, just pause on that. God spoke, and things that did not exist now exist. He summons the earth, but not only at creation, but every moment since, right? From the rising of the sun to its setting, that God at this moment is sustaining 
all of the universe. So that if he took even a second off, everything would cease to be. That God is mighty. He is powerful. So let me ask you this. When you come into church to worship, or perhaps when you, when you sit down at your table at, at your home and you open your Bible by yourself, with your family, when you close your eyes to pray over a meal, before you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, do you realize who it is that you're addressing? Like, do you, do you stop and consider, I'm about to speak, I'm about to worship the God of the universe who, who spoke the world into existence? Because I fear we often just, just go from task to task with very little thought. And I, I would certainly include myself in this. Like, I came in. I walked through the doors, I set my bag down, I had a conversation, we laughed, hey, how's your week, Aren't, isn't this team doing well, blah, 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 oh my goodness, Paul's leading in worship, I better start singing. And we have very little intentional thought of who it is that we've come to worship. Look at verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty... God shines forth. Now this is, this is an interesting statement, at least it was to me. That, that God is powerful, like, makes sense to me. Right? That makes sense to me. That God is, that God is mighty. Yep. That checks out. But beautiful? That, that's not usually the first adjective we reach for when we're trying to describe God. And beauty is an intriguing concept, and I think if I asked you, either before or after the service, how would you define beauty? Most of us would probably have a very difficult time in defining beauty. It's something that's very tough to define, but we, we recognize it when we see it, right? Like a sunset is beautiful. Some of you prefer sunrises, that's fine. You can get up early and go outside, that's fine. I would prefer sunsets. They're beautiful, right? My wife is beautiful. A, a child being born is beautiful. And all these things are beautiful, but not in the same way. So when you think of God, do you think beauty? Like, do you think attractiveness when you think of God? Because this text says he's the perfection of of beauty. He is the perfection of beauty. And this isn't an isolated text. Isaiah 33 verse 17, speaking of God coming in salvation to Israel, says this, your eyes will behold the king, not in his power, not in his authority, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Brothers and sisters, God is beautiful and he is the standard of beauty. And there's coming a day for those who are in Christ where we will gaze upon his beauty and get to enjoy it for all eternity. We will behold the king in his beauty. This text says his beauty will shine 
forth and all will see it. So when we think of beauty in our world, our, our minds need not go to Hollywood. They need not go to a magazine cover, but to God. If you want to see true beauty lived out in the world, look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is no more beautiful person that has ever lived or will ever live. And his beauty was not that of of physical attraction. It was a beauty of character, of holiness shining forth. And what you'll find is throughout the Gospels, the outsiders, the outcasts, they're what? They're attracted to Jesus. They want to be near him. They find him beautiful. And if we're going to be faithful to Christ in our lives, in our world, then we need to see God as beautiful and seek to have that beauty lived out in our own lives, in our own holiness, and in our own Christ-likeness. Because I think it's, it's pretty common that when you find something beautiful, you find something attractive, you tend to emulate it, right? So if you're a sports person, you are watching your favorite basketball player, their game is beautiful, what do you do? You study it. I want to be able to shoot like this person. So I'm going to watch footwork. I want to watch how he goes up. We study it. If you find an actor, an actress, somebody attractive, often what you'll do is you'll seek to emulate them in their clothes. What they wear, how they do their hair, you want to do the same. I'm very guilty of this. If Sarah and I are watching television, especially if it's a show uh, where the people are very well dressed, like all the time I'm like, man, I like that suit. I really like that guy's coat. Because we seek to emulate, to imitate that which we find attractive. So if we find Jesus to be overwhelmingly beautiful and attractive, then our lives will begin to look like his. And what you're going to see, if you are like Christ in our culture, then yes, there's going to be plenty of people that are ready to condemn you. I mean, Christ was crucified, right? But you're also going to find that there are plenty of people around you that will flock to Christ as a result of you living like Christ. So God is powerful, God is beautiful. Let's look at the rest of this section. And we see the authority of God on display. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. Like That's a fearful sight. He calls to the heavens above. He calls to the earth beneath. And they obey. They respond. And he calls to judge. But do you see who he's judging at the moment? It's not the outside world. He's judging his people. And his judgment is righteous. The heavens declare His righteousness. The righteousness of God will be on display in the judgment. And God Himself is going to judge. Do you see that? For God Himself. I'm not leaving this task to anyone else. This is mine. God Himself is 
judge. And this can be freeing, this can be exciting, and this can be absolutely fearful. And I often try my best to to press on students the reality that they're going to stand before God in judgment one day. So let me say to you, their parents and the church, you're going to stand before God in judgment one day. And it's this understanding of God in His power, in His authority, in His beauty that He's going to judge His people that should lead us to respond rightly. And so this section ends with that word, Selah. Pause. Think about God. This is your God. And this brings us to the second section. And the focus is this. So if you're taking notes, here it is. Worship detached from true affections is not genuine worship. So worship detached without the heart is not real worship. It's going to be verses 7 through 15. I could also have called this section, Believers are judged for failing to recognize their dependence on God. Either one works for me. Verse 7. Verse 7 kind of establishes what is going to take place. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So so this isn't going to be a pleasant conversation. This is not going to be a pleasant encounter. This isn't dad calling to his child, hey, son, get down here, we need to talk. And the conversation's like, we're getting ready to go on vacation, what do you want to do, where do you want to eat? Like, this is dad calling to child, son, get down here, because there's a broken lamp in the middle of the floor, right? Son knows when he comes down, he's in trouble, right? It's just a different feel entirely. And so God calls his people to judgment, and he reminds them that he is their God. Do you see this? I am God, yes, overall, but I am your God. I am the one that's going to testify against you. So, so what's he going to say? Are they not obeying the law? Are they failing to bring sacrifices that they were supposed to bring? Look at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So, so a lack of sacrifices is not the problem. That's not the issue. And what we're going to see is they're, they're bringing the sacrifices as they're supposed to bring them, but they're, they're doing it in a wrong way. And I'll show you this by the end. It's not in the sense of Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire. They kind of came up with their own kind of cocktail of sacrifices and thought it would be acceptable. No, these Israelites are doing what they're supposed to do, but they're going to do it in a wrong way. And again, I'll show you when we get to the end of this section. Look at verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. 
Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? It's as if God is saying to Israel, do you understand the point of the sacrificial system at all? Like, do you understand what I'm actually trying to, to teach you here? I didn't command you to bring these sacrifices because I need them. <laughs> God says, I, I'm not hungry. You're not providing for me anything. Everything's already mine. It's already mine. You're not giving me anything I don't already own. And the point of the sacrificial system was to display their utter dependence on God. That's why the sacrificial system is in place. To show the severity of sin, to display the holiness of God, to show that even in the day-to-day ins and outs of life, God is the one that provides. Like the offering of first fruits. For instance, you live in an agrarian culture. You are dependent upon the plants. God is the one that provides rain, right? God is the one that causes the plants to grow. So when you're offering your first fruits to God, you're saying, God, you provided me with everything. Here's a a piece of what you have already given to me. That's the point. The atoning sacrifices were to display, this is how bad your sin is. This is how holy I am, such that it takes the death of an animal to cover sin. So you want to stand before me. You want to be in a right relationship with me. You're dependent upon me to cover it. And this is a lesson brothers and sisters, that we desperately need to learn in our day. God is completely independent and self-sustaining. What does that mean? That means we don't add anything to God. Let me say it another way. God does not need us. We live and breathe this air of, of self-esteem, of personal value, that if, if I'm not the center of everything going on, then somebody's slighting me, right? Like, I, I don't need to be around that person if I'm not going to be the point. And so for, for God to say all throughout the Bible, right, I don't need you. You're not the point. <laughs> That's jarring for us. Let me frame it this way from the text. If God was hungry, do you really think he'd come to us? Like, if he needed something, do you think I'm the go-to guy to provide for God? Like, he already owns everything. All the cattle, all the birds flying, he knows them all, he owns them all. And we run into a lot of problems in our theology, in our life, when we begin to think that we add something to God, that he's dependent upon us for something that he lacked. Rather than understanding he's the creator, we're the creature, he's independent, we are dependent. A lot of squirrely things begin to happen when we try to establish our own independence, our own autonomy apart from God. And I know that that makes us chafe a bit. But it's this very reality 
that makes the glory of the gospel shine all the brighter. God does not need us. He did not create us because he was lonely. Because he needed something to fill this void. And even if he did, like we're a bunch of rebellious creatures that don't listen, don't obey, we do our own thing. Like, Are we really the ones that he wants to spend his time with? But here's the thing. God does not need us, and yet he loves us to the point of sending his own son to bear the penalty for our sin in his death and rise again so that we can actually be brought back to God. If we understand God doesn't need us and yet he loves us and he, he's even provided his son to bring us back, like how spectacular is the gospel message that this is the God we get to know. This is the God we get to love. That he's ready to redeem those who believe. Like that's spectacular. He's not under any obligation to do so, and yet he does. Now you, you might ask, I said, towards the beginning of this section, that these people are offering sacrifices with a wrong heart. Where did I, where did I get this? Look at verses 14 and 15. It says this, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So it wasn't that the people were not offering sacrifices. It's that in offering the sacrifices, they weren't thankful. God says, the, the sacrifice I actually want is for you to be thankful for what I've given you. The sacrifice God wants is our recognition of our dependence on Him. Being ungrateful is a far bigger sin than we realize. Romans 1.21, this section, very familiar, begins with a statement, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, we, re we read this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or listen to this, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So one massive sin that God says leads to the wrath of God being revealed is not giving thanks. Do you consider ungratefulness in your heart as sinful? Let me, let me ask it this way. Does your inbred lack of contentment strike you as a contributing factor to the death of the Son of God? Do you see your lack of contentment, your ungratefulness as causing contributing to the death of Jesus Christ? It's not long, I'm finding out very soon, that in a, in a child's life, before they learn, that's mine, I want that, that's mine, it's mine. Right? And parents, your job is to break that, right? <laughs> that's not yours, just because you want that doesn't mean you get it. And yet that attitude 
stays with us, right? All throughout our adult life. And we need to fight against it. So when you come to church to worship God, is your first instinct to be critical of what you don't like, what was lacking in the service? Or, I think, far more likely for a lot of us, do you, do you come to church and you're just indifferent? Like you show up, you know you're, you're supposed to do it. It's how I was raised to be. You can say with your mouth, I love Jesus, but you know in your heart, like, I don't genuinely love Jesus. I don't have any desire for holiness. I'm here to get my ticket punched that says I was present at church so that when I stand before God at Judgment Day, I can present my little calendar that said I did not miss a Sunday. And we're acting like these Israelites who were doing all the right things outwardly and yet being judged by God. Because God cares about the heart. Now, granted, there, there's going to be moments where our heart isn't on fire for God as much as we would like it to. And we go through seasons like that. We have off days, right? But we need to strive to warm our cool hearts with who God is, with what God has done in Christ, with a sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We cannot be content, we cannot be indifferent with our cool affections. So when we walk in those doors, we need to beg God that the Spirit of God, God, stir in me a heart for you so that when I sing, I genuinely am growing to love you more and more. We cannot simply go through the motions and expect to be accepted by God. And verse 15 is a wonderful promise. I'm very thankful for how God has organized this psalm. Offer to God sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Look at verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. He says, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. When you recognize your dependence upon God and you call upon Him, He's ready to receive you. You see that? I will deliver you. When you come to Christ, I think of the old, old song, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When you come to Christ and you say, I've got nothing else but you, Jesus isn't going to stiff arm you. Jesus is going to welcome you and by no means cast you out. It's a wonderful promise to hear. And this sets up point three. And I promise you, these last two will be far shorter. And point three, the, the focus is on the true works. These are, these are the works that these Israelites were actually doing while they were offering the right sacrifices. So look at verses 16 through 21. But to the wicked, God says, Paul's, keep in mind, he's addressing his people. And he can call them wicked. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline 
and your words, or excuse me, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongues frames, your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So these people were offering the right sacrifices on Sunday, but, but Monday through Saturday, if you will, this is how they actually live their lives. Their actions did not line up with their confession. They hate the discipline of God. They discard it when it's necessary. They're pleased. They're entertained by sinners. They want to spend time with them. Not in the sense that, that Jesus spent time with sinners. Right? Jesus spent time with the most sinful people, and he taught them, and he drew them in. And they, often, what do you see? They repented. <laughs> they trusted Christ. These people are with the sinners to be entertained. They let their mouths slander their brothers. Their mouths are giving free reign. And worst of all, and I I believe kind of the foundation of all the other actions, they thought that God was like them. Do I really even need to point out how we are often the exact same way? We we read our Bibles. We're, We're good Christians. We read our Bibles, but then we encounter something in the Bible that that rubs up against us. It tells us you are to live in this way, and we really don't want to. And so what do we do? We stop reading that section of Scripture, right? We cast it aside. That really doesn't apply to me. I know that's what it says, but there really should be an asterisk beside it, and in the back of the Bible it just says, except for this guy, right? That's how we often feel. We're quick to assume that the Bible is wrong and, and we are the ones that are right. Now, we might not say that out loud, but by continuing in it, we're saying our desires win. My desires, what I want, what I like, has more authority. Brothers and sisters, whole denominations of churches have done this exact thing. Whether it's sexuality, whether it's marriage, a whole host of other things, coveting something else, we tend to throw away what we don't like. And we we can't do this. We can't do this. We take the precious covenant of God on our lips. We confess faith in Christ. We sing these wonderful songs. And then we slander one another. We talk bad about one another. And this is something, again, as a, as a student pastor, I hear from students. Like, you should have heard what so-and-so said to me at school. And I'm very thankful that when you come to, to big church, that never happens, right? We always assume the best in one another. We never talk behind somebody else's back. We always go to verify stories. We never slander one another. Because that would be sinful if we did And the last statement certainly should hit close to home. That our biggest issue is the same as theirs. We often think God is like us. Sure, he's, he's bigger, he's stronger. 
but we shrink God down to a size that we can manage, that we're comfortable with. Like God's like me. He, he's not going to ask me to do something that's, that's too crazy, right? He's not going to uh, ask me to give too much of my time, too much of my money. That would make me uncomfortable. He's not going to ask me to, to stop watching those shows or stop listening to this music. He's not going to stop telling me or stop asking me to, uh, to stop setting up tea times on Sundays, because really that's my only day off, or I, I'd really like to go fishing. God wouldn't expect me to miss a fishing trip to be at church. He wouldn't ask me to be uncomfortable talking about Jesus at home with my kids, with my wife, my husband, or, or at work. That's thinking God is like us, but he is not. He is the creator of all. And they're rebuked for this. And we need to heed this warning before we are judged for the same. Because we are more like the people in the Bible than we realize. We have the same tendencies, the same struggles. And this is why we need the word of God to instruct us. To show us our need for Christ. We're not smarter, we're not more advanced than the Israelites that we're first hearing this. Sure, we have better technology, praise God, but we're just as needy for God. Our actions need to match our confession, even imperfectly. We're not going to be perfect, and I'm not saying we're always going to be perfect, but we cannot tolerate less and expect to be accepted by God. Like, we can't lower the bar and then be excited when we're able to reach it. Fourth point, final warning, verses 22-23. It says this, Mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Church, we, we need to take this seriously. God is not to be trifled with. I heard a pastor one time say that when he, he came to faith in Christ his freshman year of, of college, and he said he read through the entire Bible in a matter of weeks. He said his, his big takeaway through his first reading of the Bible is this God plays for keeps. Psalm 50 acts as a warning for us as followers of Christ. We cannot simply go through the motions and expect that God would be pleased. God will judge our actions and our hearts. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter writes, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's judgment and then there's a promise of salvation. If you fall into the hands of the living God, who is going to deliver you? If you think you can play the church game, show up, go home, have no desire for Jesus, no real love for the church, for the Bible, then don't, accept to be, don't expect to be accepted by Christ on Judgment Day. But God is graciously giving us the opportunity to think about our relationship with Him. And you have the opportunity to, to, 
to stop and think. Are you cold in your affections for Christ? Do you have affections for Christ at all? (laughs) Are you thankful for the work of Christ? Are you offering to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving? And if the answer is no, we do have this promise of salvation, don't we? The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. That you have the opportunity to repent, to confess it to God, to ask him for help. And he's not going to cast you out. Just because you're at church every week does not make you a Christian. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, ministry leader, just because you're here going through the right tasks does not make you a Christian. And you can fool us. Like I'm not hard to fool. <laughs> but God is your judge. And if you've been, been cold, you've been distant from God, and you know it, you're just going through the motions, then confess that to Him as we prepare to sing. Ask Him for help because he is ready to deliver those who recognize their need for him. And, and for us who are, are followers of Christ, then the message of Psalm 50 is, take heed lest you fall. We need to be reminded of the beauty, the power, the authority of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To be thankful for the work of Christ, to glorify him in our day-to-day life, not just on Sundays, but all of our life dedicated, recognizing our dependence on God for everything. My prayer is that our lives would display this beauty, this thankfulness to our good, gracious God, and that many would believe as a result. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this text. I'll confess this was not the most pleasant because in this I see my own struggles, my own indifference, my own toleration of of being cool towards Christ. And Lord, I I know I'm not the only one. And so Lord, I pray uh, that during this time, the rest of this day, rest of this week, month, that you would press on us our true affections for you, whether we love you, and if we do, I pray we'd be all the more thankful and glorify you and grow and reflect that beauty in our lives, and Lord, for those who are in here that who have been coming, who think they're followers of Christ, but they're very indifferent, I pray that you would stir that reality in their hearts, and Lord, for those who are in here who are not followers of Christ, maybe they know they're not followers of Christ, that you would draw them because you are beautiful and the glory of the gospel shines. We don't deserve it. You're not obligated to save us, but in Christ you pay the penalty and you rise again to bring us back to you. Who is the standard of beauty? Who gives life and joy? Who we were made to know. You're our treasure, God. Pray that we would recognize that. Help us. We need you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store.
just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.